Dart smacked that asteroid. Now what? We'll find out this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. DART, the double asteroid redirection test, was a brilliant success. No one is happier about this than Lindley Johnson and Kelly Fast of NASA's Planetary Defense Coordination Office. But Lindley and Kelly will tell us that we're not yet where we need to be to avoid a catastrophic impact on our world. My conversation with them is minutes away. We're even closer to checking in with Sarah Alamed. The next host of this show will drop by to share an article by our colleague Jason Davis about the water on Mars. Want to work for the Planetary Society? Sarah will also tell you about a couple of job searches underway. Bruce Betts will tell us when and where to enjoy the total lunar eclipse, that is, days away as this episode becomes available. The interstellar dust does not spell out Surrender Dorothy, but the green cloud otherwise looks like it could be the work of a wicked witch, and that's why it tops the Halloween edition of our free weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Down below is the Hubble Space Telescope's image of asteroid Dimorphos with dual trailing tails. You'll hear it mentioned in my conversation with Lindley Johnson and Kelly Fast. Think it's hot outside? Probably not as hot as an exoplanet dubbed GJ1252b. How hot? Gold and silver would melt into pools on its surface. That's based on data from the Spitzer Space Telescope. As always, there's much more in store at planetary.org slash downlink. Sarah Alamed has another couple of months as our digital community manager. Sarah, welcome back. Of course, it's our intent that you uh, be heard regularly on these programs, leading up to when you take over with the first Planetary Radio episode of 2023. Uh, You must be excited. Looking forward to that. Oh, I am. And it's so exciting to begin my training on this job already. I've I've had such a great time. (laughs) I hope that continues. I hope you're able to say that you enjoyed this uh, transition period uh, once you reach January 4th. In the meantime, we've got other stuff to talk about starting with an article by our terrific colleague, Jason Davis. What a great writer. On October 25, he posted this uh, piece called Your Guide to Water on Mars, which is as good a brief guide to where we're going to find H2O on the red planet as as anything that I, I have read. People want to hope that there used to be life on Mars in the past. We know that this planet used to have oceans of liquid water, but something changed at some point. So getting an overview of what was the situation in the past, what is it like now, and how we can use that water going forward with our science exploration is very useful. But it's just not the planet it used to be. And that's a, a little sad for me. <laughs> how, how do you feel about that, Matt? That like Mars used to be a place covered in water and now it's just a dusty rock. <laughs> I love those animations that simulate what Mars may have looked like billions and billions of years ago. They're generally done with careful scientific accuracy. So they don't show stuff growing all over the place. They just show all that water. Maybe someday we'll terraform it. But in the meantime, as Jason has written about, there's still quite a bit of water hiding away up there. There is. And it's really useful to know how we can get at that for a few reasons. 
we want to find life or maybe where life used to exist on Mars. So water as we know it for life is useful, but we can also use that water for things like creating fuel, or if we're going to send humans there, create human habitats, we might want that water for them to drink, to create plants, or maybe if we're going to get really fancy with it, we can use that water and some Martian dirt to 3D print some habitats or something. That would be really yeah. exciting. Most of the water on Mars is locked up in water ice caps at the poles. Trying to get at that water at the poles is a little difficult because it's easier for us to send space missions to Mars somewhere near the equator. We need that cushion of atmosphere to really kind of slow down our spacecraft when they're incoming. So we try to head around that area. Finding water in other places outside of those poles is also very useful. Rovers on the surface have been looking at hydrated minerals that were formed on Mars in water. And if we can crunch those up, we can get to water there as well. But an easier way to actually get at the water on Mars is probably in ice under the surface. The surface is covered in this dusty layer, but when the Phoenix lander was on Mars back in 2008, it actually just a little bit under the surface found water ice sitting there waiting to be harvested. And after it was uncovered, of course, that water sublimed, it, it uh, disappeared over time. But knowing that there is water right under the surface in a frozen form could be very useful to us. I am looking at those wonderful images. I remember when they were grabbed, it wasn't that long ago, by Phoenix, just a few inches or centimeters underneath the surface. And there is this white stuff, which uh, sure enough is, is water. Very exciting stuff. Jason also, he goes into even more of how we might harvest this water at uh, at some point. Seems like a lot of trouble, though, to start crunching hydrated minerals uh, when when you may just have to dig down a little bit. Hey, I got an idea. We could build canals. <laughs> right back to the canale of old days. Yeah. yeah, build canals, harvest out all the water in there, uh, create our own little water ecosystem on Mars. It'd be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> some spacecraft have been looking at different water deposits, both in icy form and potentially in lake form. Don't get too uber excited about this, but um, we do have some evidence Mars Express back in 2018 flew over the southern cap, the polar ice cap, and found evidence that there might be an actual liquid water lake under that ice cap. And of course, we've done more observations since then going back over it. And some people have suggested that maybe it's not liquid water, maybe it's frozen carbon dioxide with some minerals mixed in there. But even just that suggestion is really exciting. And looking at those locations from above, the topography over those supposed lakes looks very similar to the stuff over frozen underground lakes we see here on Earth. So <laughs> that's really exciting too. But until we do more science, until we go back and try our hand at harvesting this water, who knows how it's going to go. Which, of course, all of us at the Planetary Society hope that um, uh, this exploration of the Red Planet uh, continues apace. There is one other thing I know you want to mention uh, before we let you go, Sarah, and that is a couple of uh, opportunities that we have at the Planetary Society, both of them related to uh, what you've been doing and what you will be doing. Oh, yeah. I've been the digital community manager at the Planetary Society for two years, which means I've been managing our social media aud audiences and in the background working on this digital community app project. But now that I'm moving on to Planetary Radio, we need someone to step into my old role. So something that we're trying to fill right now is a six-month temporary position for our new digital community manager. 
So if you feel like you want to interact with our Planetary Society audiences and really get involved in our social media and maybe this app, that would be the job that you want to apply for. Another thing that's really going to help us out as we make this transition is we're looking for a freelance audio editor to come in and help me put the show together. But this person will also help us put together our monthly space policy edition with our chief advocate and senior space policy advisor, Casey Dreyer. We're really hoping that we can bring someone on quickly. So if either of these jobs are exciting for you, please go to our website. You can find these job postings at planetary.org slash careers. It's a great organization. I can tell you from many years of personal experience, it's a great, uh, great place to work with terrific colleagues like the one we've been talking to. Sarah, I look forward to continuing these conversations uh, and uh, then listening to you as you uh, host Planetary Radio and participating in that digital community, which will be premiering uh, sometime early next year. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Matt. Remember that you can leave a message welcoming Sarah and or saying goodbye to me using our new toll-free number, 844-PLANRAD. Thank you once again to all of you who have already emailed me so many wonderful messages at Planetary Radio at planetary.org. A quick break now, and then an uninterrupted conversation with Lindley Johnson and Kelly Fast about saving the world. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. When you become a member of the Planetary Society, you join their mission to increase discoveries in our solar system, to elevate the search for life outside our planet, and decrease the risk of Earth being hit by an asteroid. Co-founded by Carl Sagan and led today by CEO Bill Nye, the Planetary Society exists for those who believe in space exploration to take action together. So join the Planetary Society and boldly go together to build our future. Lindley Johnson and Kelly Fast have been my guests many times. Lindley is NASA's Planetary Defense Officer, and the lead program executive for the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, created by the agency nearly seven years ago. His colleague Kelly manages the Near-Earth Object Observations Program that is also part of the PDCO. The success of DART led me to inviting them back for a discussion that puts this test in the much broader context of an international effort to save our planet from the space rock that will someday threaten to do to us what one did to the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. Lindley and Kelly, welcome back to Planetary Radio. You know, we, we've we been following the DART mission very closely. I was able to uh, congratulate Nancy Chabo, uh, the coordination lead for the mission, and the entire team just hours after the impact, and we ran a lot of that live coverage uh, on uh, the show that just came a couple of days later. But this is my first opportunity to congratulate the two of you and the Planetary Defense Coordination Office because you have received great credit, your office, from that team, from all of the people that we have been talking to about planetary defense, 
So uh, thank you for this leadership, which uh, who knows, may someday just uh, just save the world. Thanks a lot, Matt. Uh, and uh, as I always like to say, planetary defense is a team sport. It takes uh, expertise, uh, guidance, and uh, contributions from a wide uh, range of folks for the DART mission, as you're aware, that's uh, uh, not only a, a U.S. team, but an international team that has worked on that project and continues to finish it up now with the international observations that are going on. And I'm going to come back to that international angle across all of planetary defense. How about those images? And I'm not just talking about the DART images before impact, but all the other beautiful ones, including from, speaking of international, in Lichia uh, Cube. Well, all of them, the, the whole experience was amazing. I must say that even as we were watching the DART images come in, the views of Didymos and Dimorphos before the impact, we couldn't help but sit there analyzing what we were seeing, comparing to what we knew prior to that, uh, uh, getting to see those details. I mean, there was the planetary defense aspect, but certainly just the fact to be able to get to know some other small bodies in the solar system, looking at Dimorphos, the, the rubble on the surface, wondering what type of uh, uh, impact there might be. Would there be a plume? And looking at that, it was like, oh my goodness, there's going to be a plume. And then, as you said, those images afterwards from the Chia Cube, from the ground-based telescopes, uh, like from the Atlas telescope that we, we fund, just those beautiful plume images, incredible data for planetary defense, but just so exciting, you know, just from a science and a public perspective to, uh, uh, to, to get to experience this. We have uh, that Hubble captured image with those double tails. My gosh, did, did, did we create a comet? That, that's really going too far, isn't it? I was an attendee for the uh, Division for Planetary Sciences meeting remotely, and I, I remember one presenter mentioning active asteroids and then saying, by the way, we just created another active asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> Lindley, I during the live coverage, I don't know if you know it, but I saw you in the background in some of the shots there at APL, Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. Not surprising to see you there. Well, that's where I like to be in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, where were you on that amazing day? Oh, boy, I, I had a small part in the um, impact broadcast answering a few questions. And then when that was done, I rushed over to the guest event and watched with everybody else on some of the screens that were there at APL. And so so I was just uh, enjoying with them. But then Lindley was there in the uh, Mission Operations Center watching firsthand. I wish I had been there, you know, along with our boss, the science guy. It looked like uh, it looked like quite a party for uh, for planetary defense. Yeah, I saw Bill. Bill there, he was having a good time. Oh, yeah. He knows how to have fun. In my newsletter, I said that we now know that we have the ability to avoid the fate of the dinosaurs. Lindley, was, is that a premature statement or are we now close to that? Well, um, maybe a bit uh, premature, but we have uh, successfully demonstrated that a technique uh, like a kinetic impactor can have a, an effect on the velocity of an asteroid, change its speed, and therefore will be able to change its orbit. I, I think there's uh, uh, some yet to understand about uh, everything we'd like to about that interaction. You know, we were pretty confident <laughs> that uh, uh, this was going to happen, but until you actually do something 
uh, like this, you never know how exactly it's going to turn out. And I think I think there are a, a few uh, things in addition that we will learn about this with a closer examination of all the data that uh, the investigation team is getting now. Anxiously await their report out of how successful they think they were and what things uh, maybe they didn't expect. I was actually surprised by how quickly we were told after the fact that sure enough, DART had done what we had hoped, not just impacting, but deflecting the course of this uh, this little moonlit asteroid. Was that something that, that you folks expected to hear so soon and that it would be such a dramatic change? Well, I know that uh, the team had calculated kind of a wide range of period changes that would be possible, you know, all based on physics. So it was all reasonable, uh, but it ended up being towards the higher end, which was great. And so that that allowed them, you know, with confidence to come forward earlier uh, to brief NASA headquarters so that every, everybody, you know, felt comfortable with this and uh, to go ahead and come out with uh, uh, these results based on the light curve data, and also based on on radar, having uh, different techniques confirming each other, and so uh, so it wasn't outside of the realm of possibility. But uh, it was it was nice to be able to come out and, and say something uh, even sooner than uh, conservatively planned. Yeah, part of the reason for that is that uh, the after impact uh, observations were uh, better, uh, um, more successful in uh, being able to collect the data than we thought they might be after the impact. So uh, we thought it might be a week or so before there was enough clearing of the ejecta and such that uh, reliable optical observations could be taken. But uh, that turned out not to be true. Uh, Some of the Southern Hemisphere observatories were able to uh, get pretty clean uh, light curve data in that first week. You know, then the uh, other major contribution there was uh, the radar. Goldstone uh, radar. We uh, didn't actually know how successful that was that was going to be. First of all, whether the radar would even be available that quickly for various reasons, uh, maintenance being being one of them. Uh, that seventy meter dish is getting pretty old. Uh, also, it's it's uh, scheduling because that uh, radio antenna you know gets used for for all of our interplanetary communications. Uh, so yeah. scheduling that asset is uh, is a real challenge uh, sometimes. It uh, turned out to uh, be available, get uh, good, clean data, not only just to be able to detect the two objects, but also have enough signal to noise that they could actually do some imaging. That data coming in pretty quickly uh, within a few days uh, also led to the confidence that uh, we could announce uh, a lot earlier than uh, we had uh, anticipated. You know, I didn't think of this until now, but had it still been available to us, would the late lamented Arecibo radio telescope, that most powerful radar instrument, would it also probably have been put to use? Oh, certainly. Uh, some of the better radar imaging work was actually done by statically, as we would have probably used Arecibo, but in this case, uh, the Green Bank 100 meter uh, was used. When you say bi-statically, do you mean that there were two radio telescopes involved? Yeah, uh, Goldstone transmits and Green Bank receives. Oh, I see. That's Very how, interesting. That's how the bi-static works. 
I won't go into uh, the great detail about how that all works. Uh, <laughs> uh, don't want to absorb too much of your program here. <laughs> yeah, be lost on me anyway, I think. But, but, but that is fascinating. I didn't know that that takes place. Doesn't this also, the fact that we had this data back from largely ground-based facilities so quickly, doesn't this also say something about how much more sophisticated we have become in observing uh, objects like this? Well, yes, we, uh, I mean, as you know, there's such a, a large population of small bodies out there, and that's why we have a planetary defense at NASA and trying to, to track them to know if any pose an impact threat. And also, fantastic science targets. But as we learn each time, you know, they're, they're, we keep learning there's more to learn and they're all individual. They're part of uh, populations and families, but they have their personalities. And so having these close-up uh, observations are really helpful for better understanding our uh, remote observations like light curves, like radar, like spectroscopy, all the things that we can do from the ground because we can't send spacecraft to all of them. But to be able to have spacecraft at some to understand their properties and to tie that into what we're able to do from the ground and to better understand the ground-based data, that will really help us to better characterize the larger population of asteroids out there, which is especially important for planetary defense and um, understanding what could potentially happen in the event of an impact. You also remind me of all that stuff that's coming back uh, from Bennu very soon now, uh, and uh, all those scientists who can't wait to get their hands on uh, that material collected by o Osiris Rex. Lindley, speaking of needing more data, we have this one data point now from an impact, unless you go back to deep impact a lot of years ago, which really wasn't sent to do this. It's a great data point, but I mean, wouldn't it be great to have data from maybe five or 10 more DART-type missions impacting different kinds of asteroids to, to really teach us what we need to know? Well, sure. Uh, you know, if you had uh, unlimited resources or <laughs> any, any number of things uh, that, you'd, uh, uh, that you'd like to do. You know, yeah, this is one data point, so to speak, uh, but uh, I think it's a pretty uh, rich uh, data point. Uh, and I think there will be kinetic impact test uh, done uh, in the future. I think there are a few other priorities that we have in planetary defense uh, first, though. And of course, the, the first one is we need to improve our capabilities uh, for finding these objects and knowing where they are and where they're going. So the next highest priority of planetary defense mission is the NEO surveyor, getting that, that capability on its way to the launch pad and into operation so that we have uh, uh, time uh, to find these things uh, well ahead of time. Every year uh, that a capability like that uh, slips is a one less year that we might have if there were an asteroid on its way to Earth. So that is our highest priority thing. Also, as Kelly was saying, uh, our ability to observe these things and, and learn about their character from the ground is, is improving uh, more and more uh, every time we do these kinds of things. It's very much an iterative process, but uh, there's still uh, nothing as good as uh, actually getting a spacecraft out there to, to look at it and do a more up-close examination so that uh, we know uh, what we're dealing with. So as the uh, planetary science decadal says, another priority is uh, a rapid reconnaissance capability. If we do find a asteroid on its way to Earth, uh, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, we're still talking several years, but but perhaps not decades. Being able to get out there fairly quickly to get a look at it, 
prior to deciding what is going to be the best technique uh, that could be used uh, against it to uh, change its uh, trajectory. And so that also gets into uh, some other things uh, that we want to try to do, and that is kinetic impactor, you know, may uh, be one tool that we uh, will not have in our toolbox uh, if we're ever faced with uh, such a threat. We'd like to have uh, two or three tools because in our studies of this, uh, it all really depends on the scenario, what might be the best way uh, to interact with the asteroid and, and change its orbit. Uh, so testing some other techniques, I think, would be higher on our agenda than doing another kinetic impact test. I think we will eventually get back to that as we sustain our planetary defense efforts, but uh, we should test some other techniques like a gravity tractor or mm. an ion beam deflection. There are some other ideas out there as well that we should take a look at. Our boss, the, the science guy, once again, he still likes to talk about those laser bees that uh, the Planetary Society helped develop at the very early developmental stage. Uh, you know, a swarm of spacecraft out there shooting not, uh, not ions, but photons at uh, asteroids to divert them. Just last week on the show, I had Melissa Brucker, Principal Investigator for Space Watch, Eric Christensen, same job for the Catalina Sky Survey. They both told me how much they are looking forward to the launch of that spacecraft you just mentioned, Neo Surveyor, uh, the mission led by their University of Arizona colleague, good friend of this show, Amy Meinzer. Uh, as you know, Planetary Society is a big proponent of, of this project and so excited to see it moving forward. Unfortunately, I didn't get to visit Amy while I was at the University of Arizona. Timing was wrong. She was at JPL for a major mission uh, development review. So I didn't get to see the camera that's coming out of her lab. At the risk of boring some listeners who've heard this many times before, would the two of you talk about why it's so important we get this infrared telescope out there in space? Well, I'll lead off and kick to Lindley that, uh, as you said, you spoke to uh, uh, Melissa and Eric and about the efforts to find and follow up uh, asteroid discoveries and and our ground-based efforts, they're, they're doing a fantastic job and they're racking up discoveries every year and they're doing their best to really optimize how they're doing it to be most effective and to do it as quickly as possible, but they still have limitations and uh, have to wait for the asteroids to kind of come close enough to be discovered. So really everybody, you know, the community you know, over the years keeps uh, looking at, you know, how do we speed this up? And the planetary decadal and previous decadal uh or rather uh, academy studies and other reports kept pointing to the need for a space-based infrared telescope. And so to actually see this coming together is really encouraging because that, that would be the way to really accelerate uh, efforts to find near-Earth asteroids to better understand their sizes and to maybe see the populations that are harder to see from the ground. And so to have NeoSurveyor in concert with the ground-based telescopes, that's going to be really powerful. And as Lindley noted earlier, the, the longer we wait, the more of a chance there might be something out there that we're going to lose the lead time on. And so uh, it's so important to keep moving forward with this. There is no quicker way to get a full handle on the population of hazardous objects that are out there than a space-based uh, IR telescope specifically designed to do this job. Uh, there have been several studies uh, over the last decade that confirm that. Also, the most recent planetary decadal survey reinforces that point as well. NEO-surveyor is designed from the ground up to do this job and do it 
relatively quickly, even though it was still it will still take about ten years mm. uh, for all of the objects that uh, that could represent a hazard to the Earth to come uh, within uh, viewing range, because you know these orbits uh, wander all over the solar system, uh, so to speak. You know their their orbital paths are defined, but uh, they are all over uh, the solar system, at least between here and, and Jupiter. So uh, it takes a number of years for them to come in close enough into Earth's vicinity for us to uh, to pick them all up. Do we still think that there are about 25,000 of the biggest of these space rocks? You know, the ones that, that NASA was directed to find 140 meters or what is that, 460 feet or so? in size, the, the ones that could really ruin the day of pretty much everybody on Earth? That is our current estimate of the population now, where we, we uh, study that every few years. And in fact, uh, we have a study going on right now to update uh, that estimate. In the next year, we'll probably uh, have results of that study, announce the results of that study, and we're, we'll see what, what the latest data shows us uh, is uh, that remaining population. I am sure we will be covering that when it happens on Planetary Radio, and I, even though you may be talking to somebody else by that time. How would you characterize our success at this effort? I mean, really, one of the most rewarding things for me to have watched over the 20 years or so that I've been doing this show is the growth of both public and institutional awareness of near-Earth objects, the threat that they present, and the advances they make, really the advances we have made in detecting them, in tracking them, in characterizing them, and now in deflecting them as well. But it really seemed to kick into high gear with the creation of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. And, and I note that that was only going on seven years ago. I guess PDCO was coming up on an anniversary. Yeah, we have our seventh anniversary here in uh in January, not that a lot of work uh, didn't uh, precede that. You know, any mission of this sort, it uh, well, it takes a lot of things, but it takes at least two things. And that is having the assets that have the capability to do the job. And it, it takes the will to do the mm -hmm. job. It takes people that uh, understand the problem and be uh, willing to step up and do something about it took us a while to, first of all, understand that there still is a hazard there and to collect enough uh, information, uh, data about it to understand the uh, level of the potential hazard. And that was all well and good for the astronomers and the scientists to maybe understand that. But uh, it takes more than that to have a viable space uh, program. Communicating that information in an understandable way to those that need to make those kinds of decisions it takes some time as well. And, and sometimes you have to craft the message uh, two or three different ways before it penetrates through all the other things, all the other priorities that you're competing with uh, in a way. But working as at NASA for 20 years, and I worked at uh, the Air Force for 10 years before that, and that seems like a long time, but iteratively, uh, more and more every year, more and more people began to uh, understand uh, what we're dealing with there and uh, more and more uh, support uh, behind it. NASA getting serious about it mid part of the last decade and that led to the establishment of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office and more understanding and, and then uh, support uh, to our budget is what all has uh, allowed us to get to the point we are. 
not that we don't have a little further to go. So we, we continue to beat that drum and, and get us uh, where we need to be with launch of Neo Surveyor and a clamshare defense program that uh, is at a sustainable level out into the future because uh, this, is a, this is a legacy project. Uh, this is something that we Earthlings in guiding our spaceship Earth <laughs> through the solar system need to pay attention to is uh, the debris that might lie in our way. It's a dangerous uh, place that we live, and we are preparing to deal with those dangers, at least. I'm very proud that my organization, Planetary Society, I think we've played a little bit of a role in helping people be aware. But uh, Kelly, I think it also, with apologies to the thousands of people who suffered in a real way from it, it probably doesn't hurt this effort to have a, something like a Chelyabinsk every 10 or 20 years. Well, yeah, sadly, that was sort of a, uh, a wake-up call that, uh, you know, impacts still happen uh, in the solar system. The Shoemaker-Levy 9 impacts with Jupiter in 1994 was a wake-up call, and, and Chelyabinsk, unfortunately, was a, uh, a wake-up call that was far too close to home. But it helped remind people, and maybe it was one of those events that helped to push efforts along, but as Lindley noted, kind of quietly noted that, uh, you know, he has, he's been working this for the past 20 years and even uh, 10 years before that when he was at the Air Force. And I've only been in this the past decade, but it's kind of those, those quiet efforts of just, and persistent efforts of over decades to try to keep running the ball down the field and working with the rest of the community that's been working this so hard. And then also, uh, like you said, the communication. I mean, Matt, you're 20 years with the, uh, doing this with planetary radio and, and circling back to this topic over the years. That and, and just all the other events happening at NASA really helped, I think, to uh, uh, get the message out there to the point where most recently with the DART impact, a lot of the reporting was very, very well informed and not as mm. sensational as maybe it has been in earlier years. The message is getting out there in, in a realistic way. You know, we just went through a pandemic. There's other situations that are higher likelihood that, you know, we, that we have to deal with. But it's, this is still something we don't want to forget about. As Chelyabinsk showed, you know, it can happen that we can have an asteroid impact. We might not have anything like that again in our lifetimes, but we need to know. And if we have that, the capability, we've got the technological know-how, then uh, it, it's time to time to get to that point and that's what Lindley and others in the community have been working so hard for for so many years. We now have the knowledge and the technology to prevent this from ever being a major natural disaster. I think it is prudent to uh, take those steps to, to make sure that uh, asteroid impact isn't one of the natural disaster we need to fall victims to. Kelly, I want to come back to you for a moment because I didn't let you respond. Uh, when I talked about the advances that we have made and how much better prepared we are now uh, to find these objects and do all the other stuff we need to learn about them. Um, and, you know, I mentioned Space Watch, Catalina Sky Survey. Both of those principal investigators gave lots of credit to the PDCO and NASA for making it possible to do the work that they do. But that just, I mean, there are so many resources that uh, NASA is in support of, uh, these, these sky surveys uh, and so much of the other stuff that we've, we've already talked about on the show. Is there anything else that you want to call out? I mean, I, th I think of like the, the Minor Planet Center or CNEOS, that, that uh, center run not far from the Planetary Society at JPL. 
Right. The Near-Earth Object Observations Program handles the funding of all the all the non-flight uh, activities in the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, uh, which are those the surveys, the telescopes looking every night to find the asteroids and all the follow-ups, like like when you spoke to Catalina and to uh, to Space Watch. As you said, there are other activities that are really really important because it doesn't help to observe an asteroid if you don't know something about where it's going to be in the future. And so the program does fund the Minor Planet Center, which is the International Astronomical Union recognized repository for small body measurements, uh, position measurements from all over the world of all small bodies, not just near-Earth asteroids, but that's funded by the program. And then the Center for Near-Earth Object Studies, they take those data that are submitted to the Minor Planet Center and they look at uh, the orbits of these objects uh, way out into the future to try to determine if any pose an impact threat and to really do that precision orbit determination. We had a kind of a little um, exercise case earlier this year when an, an asteroid that ended up being designated uh, 2022 EB-5 ended up hmm. being discovered in space and then impacting Earth and their uh, prediction was spot on. And so it was a nice little exercise with a with an asteroid that only would have made a pretty fireball, but uh, helps us to know we're ready for the future. We have our um, the Asteroid Threat Assessment Project out at NASA Ames, which does the impact modeling of what, what happens to an asteroid as it passes through Earth's atmosphere and what would the impact effects be with, with what uh, survives to the ground. And all of that was very valuable for this uh, large interagency exercise that was held earlier this year with other U.S. agencies looking at the roles in the National Near-Earth Objects Strategy and Action Plan. Plus, we also have efforts that characterize asteroids that do spectroscopy to look at their physical properties, which uh, feeds into what the impact effects might be of an object. So all of those things really tie in closely together to give that all of the data needed should we um, ever find ourselves in an impact threat situation to be able to pull all of that together. And so a a lot of really important research uh, uh, just going on day to day uh, uh, through the program and and coordinating strongly with our uh, interagency and international uh, collaborators around the world. The International Asteroid Warning Network, as Lindley said, this is planetary defense. It's a team sport. And so so it's really important to grow the activities at NASA to the appropriate level so that we do what Congress tasked us with and uh, and what the decadal is pointing to, but also to collaborate and to uh, assist with activities around the world uh, uh, since it is such an important team sport. It's not an accident that the word coordination is in our office name, Planetary Defense Coordination Office. There's a lot of work to coordinate all, all the efforts uh, that go into this. You could think of the PDCO as being the the coach for uh, planetary defense. Planetary defense coaching office. Um, (laughs) I want to circle back, Lindley, because I said I would, to that international participation. Have you seen growth in concern and interest in planetary defense initiatives growing around the world in parallel with what we have seen in the United States? Well, certainly. uh, And uh, actually, Kelly can gives you some firsthand knowledge about this, but uh, from when we started more uh, organized uh, international effort uh, back in about uh, 2007, 
because uh, it had been identified on the uh, program for the uh, United Nations Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space as uh, as an activity that uh, needed to be uh, at least studied by the uh, international space community, if, if not agreements made on, on what should be done. That effort started back in, uh, in 2007 uh, as part of a action team uh, that the committee uh, had set up. There was maybe a, a handful of representatives from space agencies uh, like NASA and uh, ESA, uh, European Space Agency, that uh, that were involved in those uh, original studies and such. Uh, we pulled some of the other uh, major agencies in in the course of uh, four or five years, which then uh, uh, led in 2013, sort of uh, as the uh, uh, emphasis put on it by Shelia Bensk, a, a recommendation as to what the international community should be doing. At the very same time that Shelia Bensk happened, <laughs> I was actually in Vienna at the committee meeting, subcommittee meeting actually, preparing uh, to present our recommendations for the establishment of the International Asteroid Warning Network. Shelia Bensk happened the, the morning, uh, the day before we were to do that. Uh, so talk about cosmic timing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the the uh, second time in in my planetary defense career that cosmic timing came into play. That really put an emphasis, uh, explanation point, if you will, uh, on our recommendation for establishing these these two international entities. They are not UN uh, United Nations entities. They are international uh, collaborative efforts, uh, a coalition of the willing, if you uh, mm. if you will. And all they uh, started off, uh, you know, fairly uh, fairly small with only a few members. Uh, that membership has uh, uh, grown now. Uh, we just had uh, meetings of uh, these two entities last week. We are now 18 space agencies and uh, space offices, national space offices, are uh, uh, members of that, uh, full-fledged members of that organization. Uh, and we have a couple of more that are, Looking at uh, looking at joining as well, they have been observers in the last uh, couple of meetings, and uh, we fully expect them to submit their petitions for uh, being admitted to uh, membership here in the next meeting or two. Kelly can tell you about the IWAN's growth as well. Yeah, the International Asteroid Warning Network has now grown to uh, 40 signatories from 20 countries. There's a, a lot more participation now uh, from... Uh, everyone ranging from space agencies and institutes and universities down to very capable, uh, independent and amateur astronomers, um, all contributing to the observation effort, whether survey or follow-up or characterization or orbit determination. Uh, and so it, it's, it's come a long way from uh, that meeting in 2013 that Lindley mentioned with that, with that Chelyabinsk exclamation point. And those are just the official members. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, the uh, IWAN has uh, worldwide observing campaigns uh, to uh, kind of exercise the worldwide system on the observing side or to improve, check uh, the status of our capabilities, improve them. And uh, you don't have to be a member of IWAN to participate. And so uh, that's been really important, too. And so as, as, as more participate, we're encouraging them to, to actually j uh, join IWAN. And there's more at IAWN.net on that. But 
we're we're very proud of how far things have come and how how much fantastic work the uh, the participants you know, have been doing, especially on the campaign front. We will put up a link, among many others that are relevant to this conversation, to the uh, that iwan iawn dot net uh, site that uh, you can explore on this week's show page at planetary dot org slash radio. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the work of amateurs, Kelly. Uh, as you know, I can't help mentioning, of course, our Shoemaker Neo program that we uh, do out of the Planetary Society, assisting mostly amateur astronomers to uh, improve their abilities to help find and now more often track and characterize uh, these objects. Uh, it, it's a game that apparently uh, almost everybody can participate in. Right. In those cases, I know that there are some of those very capable amateurs that have benefited from the Shoemaker grants. I, I know that some of them are members of, of IWAN. And so uh, mm. so that's really fantastic, too. So that uh, that, that contribution, you know, the, the ripples continue there. You know, last year, I very much enjoyed having the writer, director, producer Adam McKay on our show. Uh, he, of course, made that uh, what I think was a terrific movie, Don't Look Up. He was joined by Amy Meinzer, who the two of you know well. We've already mentioned uh, she was the, the science advisor to that production. And I, I just want to congratulate you on being played so well by the actor Rob Morgan in that movie. Yeah, I thought he did a fantastic job as well. He, he was one of the few characters that came off looking pretty good he <laughs> in did. the whole fiasco yeah. of that movie. So I was uh, happy about that. I, I don't think that there has been in the history of this planetary defense effort, uh, anything quite as visible uh, in the popular media as that movie, even though that movie, the director will tell you, was not really about planetary defense, but they did a pretty good job, didn't they? Yeah, well, uh, they did a pretty good job of spoofing just about everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, that's the most recent, that's the most recent example, certainly, but uh, I, cosmic impact, asteroid common impact, it's been a, a genre of science fiction uh, since its, uh, its very start, uh, almost. And yeah. so there have been a number of movies uh, over over the years. Uh, maybe not everybody remembers Armageddon and Deep Impact, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, certainly our generation does. They should remember Deep Impact, maybe not Armageddon. Uh, well, Armageddon had a great soundtrack. <laughs> I like the soundtrack, anyway. But uh, I like the movies uh, all the way back to uh, the movie Meteor back in the late uh, the late sixties. Which I'll say, I'll, I'll throw this in there because Lindley won't. Uh, uh, in in the movie Meteor, Sean Connery played him. So, <laughs> and that's even before it, you know. <laughs> Planetary defense officer existed, so. Uh. I'll go back even further. Uh, when Worlds Collide, which I actually read the book before I saw the movie. You're right, I guess. This is a, a, a genre in uh, filmmaking. Well, let's hope that it stays in the uh, area of filmmaking, the disasters that these often depict. And we can thank the two of you, the PDCO, and this worldwide effort uh, if we are able to avoid that fate that is uh, depicted in so many of those movies. Just one other question for you. Uh, the next Planetary Defense Conference is coming up in uh, spring of 2023 in Vienna. Will I see either or both of you there? Well, uh, hopefully, if, uh, if, the, uh, if all the asteroids align, <laughs> you'll see both of us there. <laughs> 
Thank you both very much. It has been a great pleasure to talk to you yet again on Planetary Radio. Thanks for all the uh, uh, great work that you're doing. Keep looking up. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio, and we have the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society to walk us through it. Welcome, Bruce Betts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. From Laura Dodd in California. You're awesome too, Bruce. Please don't announce your retirement just so you could get some of the love lavished on Matt. Oh, thanks to you, Laura. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be here. I'll be here with Sarah pining for whatever that guy's name was who used to be the host. (laughs) How soon they forget. And I'm not retiring. How many times do I have to say it? I am leaving behind being host. Go on to what's up. Okay, so in the sky, we got a bunch of stuff. Jupiter and Saturn in the south in the early evening or southeast. The moon is hanging out between them from the 2nd to the 4th of November. On the 4th, it's hanging out near Jupiter. We've got reddish Mars rising in the mid-evening, and it's very bright, very bright, spectacular. will continue to brighten all month as Earth and Mars grow closer in their orbits. Now we move on. Not to another segment, but to the cool total lunar eclipse that will be visible from the Americas, the Pacific Ocean, and everything in it, Eastern Asia, and Australia. Okay, maybe not everything in it. Things really deep won't see it. I I can see Matt's preparing to school me on that. And that is the night of November, November, November 7th. Through the 8th, so for most most people, it'll be on the date will be November 8th, but it's the night that starts on the 7th. Partial eclipse, when it gets easy to start being seen, will be about 9 o'clock UT, 900 UT, which, uh, of course, if you're there, means you're bumming because um, it's daylight. But if you're, say, where we are, it'll be at uh, 1 in the morning-ish for Pacific time. You can look up the times and find the maximum eclipse is about two hours later. The eclipse ends about three and a half hours of good eclipse. Although if you're on the eastern coast, say, of the Americas, the moon will set during totality. But we get to see all of it. That's a very thorough explanation. And so nobody has any excuse for missing this unless you live at the bottom of the ocean or (laughs) giant squid will be challenged to see this, but those giant eyes may help out. We move on to this week in space history, 1973, the launch of Mariner 10, first mission to go hang out at two planets, uh, studying Venus and uh, the first and only for a few decades to study Mercury up close. Till Messenger got there. On to random space fact. Ganymede is the largest moon in the solar system, but you knew that. But did you know that even though it's the largest moon in the solar system, more than 14 Ganymedes would fit inside the Earth? No reason for us to feel inferior in this collection of uh, worlds that we fly around in. Yeah, we'll just ignore those big gassy things. Yeah. We move on to the trivia contest where I asked you, what video game popular in the 1980s owes its name to William Herschel? How do we do, Matt? There was not a huge response. In fact, we only got maybe a third of the normal number of entries for this one. I was surprised. I thought that, you know, this would be a, a pretty popular one. Interestingly, and this is maybe a first, Dave Fairchild, our poet laureate, 
doesn't always prepare a poem, but with this one, he didn't have the answer. He said, I have nothing. Bruce has beaten the poet laureate. Yes, it has been so long. I may now turn on my microphone. No, just kidding. Don't worry, Laura. I'm staying around. Matthew Atzenhofer in California, not the winner. I'm sorry, Matthew. He said, why, it's my favorite game from the 1980s. There was one at the po' boy stand across the street from my family-owned <laughs> service station where I worked as a kid, and now I'm homesick and hungry. What's he talking about, Bruce? What video game? Asteroids. Yes. Of course, you can still find even online. <laughs> now they can just shove it into a web browser. But, uh, yeah, because William Herschel, although I hear we have some debate on this that you'll tell me about, William Herschel is usually given credit for uh, coining the term asteroid to describe Ceres when they gave up on it being a planet. Yes, asteroid or asteroids was the uh, term that we were looking for, that Bruce was looking for. And, and you're right. I mean, we heard, for example, from Robert Johannesson in Norway. He says, I learned that the term asteroid may not have been coined by Sir William, but rather Charles Burney Jr., son of Charles Burney Sr., of course, a friend and colleague of Herschel's. But wait, Claude Plymate said it has recently been stated by a noted British historian that it was Stephen Weston who coined the term asteroid, and he was applying it to Ceres and Pallas. Oh my gosh, there's more. Esson Beglu in Ontario, Canada. Caroline Herschel's younger brother, Frederick William, coined the term asteroid for minor planets. He did so after observing and confirming the recently discovered bodies series. So everybody connected to Herschel, but I don't know, there's this conspiracy to take away credit uh, from Sir William, I guess. I did find out that William Herschel actually discovered centipedes. So he's also responsible for the video game centipede. <laughs> nice try. I do have one poem for you from Gene Lewin in the state of Washington. The golden age of arcade games, the 80s are so known, and fighting in a 2D space is how dart skills once were honed. They came <laughs> at you from every angle, zapped the big ones into rubble. But if you found yourself surrounded, hyperspace could get you out of trouble. Though this small move of desperation placed you at random in the void and could drop you directly in the path of a cathode ray tube asteroid. <laughs> Wow. Here's the winner. I don't actually have a name. All I have is BP. That's what he or she entered with. BP in Oklahoma. Congratulations. Uh, the response, add asteroids. I, I couldn't have said it better. Thank you, BP. And you are going to be getting one. A Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid of your very own that you can characterize and track. That's going to be the prize next time as well, Bruce, since we just finished talking to those two leaders of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. Another rubber asteroid for the winner of uh, the contest that Bruce is going to introduce right now. What former JPL director or directors have won the U.S. National Medal of Science? A very prestigious award. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Come on, folks, this ought to be fairly easy to Google, right? Or Bing or DuckDuckGo. You have until 
the knife you have until November 9th, Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time, November 9th. Get the chance to win yourself one of those fabled rubber asteroids. Alta Vista. Yahoo! <laughs> All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about how uh, we would say asteroid if Scooby-Doo had recommended the word. Thank you, and good night. I'll bite. Lay it on us. We're asteroid. <laughs> Thank you, Scooby. He's Bruce Betts, and sometimes Scooby, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week for What's Up. <laughs> Right around you, Matthew. Down, boy. Join me again next week for a Sagan Day conversation with Andrewian. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who are defenders of Earth. You can become part of this important quest when you visit planetary.org slash join. Mark Verde and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro.